looked dead, didn't I? Which is ridiculous, cause witches they were persecuted, wicked, good and love the earth and women power, and I'll be over here. The baddest shit, even super women couldn't put their hands on this. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. with Maria Lewis. Hello, welcome to F Year Film and Feminism. Uh, my name is Maria, I am your hostie with the mostie and joining on this episode of F Year Film and Feminism is the critically acclaimed, best-selling author of amazing YA fantasy book, Valentine, Jodie McAllister. Hello. Hello. Or should I say Dr. Jodie McAllister? You can say that. That is indeed my name. Okay, what is your area of expertise for people who may not be familiar with your academic work? Yeah, so my area of expertise is popular fiction, and Mm -hmm. I look particularly at representations of romantic love in popular fiction and popular culture. Yeah. So at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work on romance novels. I do a lot of work on The Bachelor. I'm really interested in particular in texts created by women, so I'm interested in soap opera. Yeah. uh, All kinds of things, really. Lots of fun stuff. If there's love in it and ladies involved, then I am Love and ladies. Yeah. I'm into it. Lesbians, yes. (laughs) Um, You've also created your own text for Valentine, which is a book that a lot of people have read. We were on Supernova tour together at the start of this year. We were indeed. You may, if you listen to the show, you probably have bumped into both of us at some point. Yes, this is very true. And your second book, Ironheart, is coming out in January? Coming out in January, yeah. So it's the... Is there a exact specific date or just January? No, it'll be the end of January. Okay. So Valentine came out January 30, so this will be yeah. like about the same. Yeah. But yeah, so it's the sequel to Valentine. Fuck yeah. Where things get even realer. Yeah, boy. Yeah. You know, originally when Who's Afraid first came out, they wanted to release it on Australia Day. <laughs> in Australia and I was like and that was from the Australian publisher and I was like um that might be a really bad idea because not only A is that a public holiday well kind of semi-public holiday I guess but also um it's a day that celebrates racism and this is a book with a biracial protagonist so then maybe let's like also what was the logic behind bringing it on Australia Day I wish I knew Jodie, yeah. I wish I knew. So but that, anyway, the point... Valentine, of course, came out on January 30 to tie in with Valentine's Day. Oh! Not that, you know, like, Valentine makes it sound like it's a super, like, romantic huggy book. Yeah. There's a romance in it, but, like, the Valentine is not about, like... No, a it's bunch about of, fairies, right? It's about, yeah, and yeah. they're scary fairies. Like, Valentine scary here fairies. refers Make to... Make your the... own haiku, guys, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, like, the Valentine here refers to the fact that this book is about four teens yeah. who are all born on the same Valentine's Day. Yeah. And they live in this small town, so this is kind of, like, a local curiosity. They're like, haha, look, four Valentine kids, hilarious. But then one by one they start going missing in these, like, creepy supernatural ways. And the heroine, Pearl, who's one of these kids, has to work out what happens before it happens to her. I'm totally fucking into kids just going missing in stories. Yeah. And the hero fiend is It's the start of a lot of good stories, to be honest. Yeah, and, like, big in Australian literature. Picnic at Hanging Rock being the classic example. Dude. Don't even. Yeah. yeah, well, we're getting the TV series for that soon. Yeah, so. starring Natalie Dormer, also on Supernova with us. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Our friend. Friend of the show, yeah. Natalie Dormer. That's <laughs> not true. That's, yeah. We barely spoke to her at all, I don't think. Yeah, we were anyway. in the same room with her. Her so. hair's beautiful. Yeah. She has beautiful hair, and that is what is important. Yeah. Her dress was nice. She's tall and statuesque. I don't know what this yeah, is going. she seemed nice. Also, Top of the Lake, um, actually, is about a missing kid, like a kid yeah. who was missing in that show. So, I, first season, anyway. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's something we get a lot in, like, Australia and New Zealand literature and screen because yeah, of so many uninhabited places. Yeah. I mean, the bush, and that's something I really wanted to do in Valentine yeah. actually is like, you know, when you're reading fairy tales and they yeah. go into the woods and the woods are like super dangerous and full of yeah. nasty things and there's like a witch there and there's wolves and yeah. shit. Yeah, same. <laughs> actually, there are witches, witches and wolves in my book, In Bushes. So Indeed, there are. Oh accurate. my god, so many commonalities. Oh my god! 
did. Who would have thought we'd become friends? Yeah. But I really wanted to kind of do the bush in the yeah. same way and kind of give it this, like, the bush is already really dangerous in our cultural yeah. imagination. So I wanted to kind of put this fairy tale quality into it as well and reimagine the woods yeah. in this really, like, Australian context. Well, speaking of fairy tales, um, one of the things, I guess, that I would consider not only the foundation for our friendship, but maybe <laughs> the building blocks is a mutual love and sheared appreciation of the Vampire Academy movie. And this is Vampire Academy. Please don't say Vampire Academy. You know how I feel about the V word. Yeah, look, let me just tell the story of how the Maria widely and I panned discovered that we loved this movie. Uh, is we were on a panel together at Melbourne Supernova. God bless. And the moderator, uh, Felicity Valance, Floss the Fangirl, now working at Penguin Teen in New York. Hello, Floss. In New York. Yeah, she, she's great. She yeah. asked everyone on the panel to confess our pop culture shame. Yeah. And most people were like, oh, I haven't read a Harry Potter or, oh, I didn't like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I've only seen one Star Wars. Yeah. I got to me and I was like, look, mine is a love. I really love the Vampire Academy movie. And Maria leapt out of her chair and bellowed, yes, at the top of her lungs. And the audience were all a bit frightened. But then we kind of like hijacked the panel for 10 minutes talking about how much we loved this film. And like, it's kind of notorious now that Jodie yeah. and Maria love Vampire Academy. Yeah. And if you sass us about it, then like, don't sass us. There'll be some trouble. Floss did like a live stream on her Twitter or Instagram. I think it was Insta. Yeah. Um, asking us questions about the Vampire Academy movie. And then when yeah. I went, and stayed with you in Hobart for a week, which mm. is hella fun times. We did uh, basically a week of watching really bad movies and live tweeting them. And it was amazing. Which included Vampire Academy it was our and one. Virgin Territory, which was your choice. Yeah. And Fucking unbelievable. What's, oh, what's it called? The Boycraft. What's the movie actually called? Oh, The Covenant. Yes. <laughs> Boycraft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck, that's a mess. Oh, that is a mess of a movie. Did that movie have a plot? No. Because, like, there no. were witches and then Sebastian Sand was evil. It was boys thrusting and, like, being moved by force. <laughs> fields and like <laughs> girls being weirdly undressed by spiders and anyway everything being blue everything was blue in everything film. was so blue oh yeah. my god boys love blue um <laughs> it was like what if in sick went bad and had powers exactly but also we watched Jupiter Ascending which is, uh, is another considered bad film but I asked Jodie if we could not live tweet it because I genuinely love and enjoy that movie and now I exactly share your opinion <sighs> It's also, such a good movie. like, on the whole, I, like, don't have a lot of time for Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. But I will defend every single acting choice he made in this movie. Like, I will... What do you mean, Jordi? What are you <laughs> talking about? That is the hill I will die oh, on. <laughs> the same year he won an Oscar. Could you imagine? Yeah. Oh, fuck. But also, I stand by my thing of, like, I love Jupiter Ascending as mm. a movie. I think it's amazing. But the problem is that it was a YA story being acted out by thirty-five-year-old yeah. leads. If you had had, if you hadn't had Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum playing Space Werewolf, if you'd had younger characters yeah. playing that those mm. roles, it would have made perfect sense. And it would have, it would have been. I mean, it's already gorgeous. Yeah, but it would have just like. But it would have made sense, and, and it would have added that extra level of like kind of wonder, like the makeover yeah. scene. But it's yeah. A, yeah, the makeover scene, but also like the weird kind of like space prince faux marriage love triangle yeah. thing but also this whole idea of like they kiss that's as far as you ever see them yeah. go it's so unrealistic of no, like I mean, car- actors maybe that are maybe 35 year old he wraps her up in his angel wings we don't know what's no. happening under there no way no way it's like a secret angel digit pops out or whatever <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny because I just saw Valerian the other day mm. and um, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, which is based on a comic book. It's kind of like a historical pop culture science fiction text. Fun. The comic is called Valerian and Lorelei, male and female characters, which fucked me off from the get-go because yeah. when they did the movie adaption... They took the lady out. She gets knocked out for a thousand planets, but it's also Lorelei is the character that... Princess Leia is based on. Ah. It's like a really seminal text and I was worried for a few reasons when they were doing this movie because it's by Luc Besson, who's one of my favourite filmmakers, Fifth Element, La Femme Nikita, The Professional, Lucy, Mm. The Mm. Family. Anyway, he's amazing. The Taken movies and Transporter and shit like that as well. Um, He basically pioneered the way blockbusters looked in the 90s through this sort of like French marketable new wave or whatever the fuck you call it. Anyway, So he was making this movie. I was very excited. I was worried because it's such a seminal science fiction text. It has inspired so much of science fiction and pop culture as we know it. Yeah. Uh, 
has had John Carter, Warlord of Mars, right? Which was a novel to begin with and ended up inspiring Star Wars and like every science fiction ever. So that when eventually... And becoming its own film. Right. Starring Tim Riggins. Oh my God. I also lo- in Boycraft. Dude, I also love John Carter. That's a yeah. great movie. But, and it's something that I think people have already come back around to being like, this wasn't as bad as people like were shitting on this. This is yeah. actually a really good movie. It has a lot of merit. But I think the big problem with that movie was people were watching it and were being like, I've seen this shit before. Like, uh, that's copying Star Wars or that's copying Star Trek or that's copying Dune or whatever. Yeah. All of those things were inspired by and based on this text, mm. but because it was like the last thing to get adapted, yeah. it looked, it looked dated, but it wasn't. Um, I also think a big problem with that is they fucking called it John Carter. That's the guy who works at your IGA. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who wants to go and see a movie based it's, on that? It's like John Wick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's John your Wick. human resources manager. You know? John Carter, Warlord of Mars, would go see. Yeah. Would, would go see. You could even take the John Carter out. Call it Warlord of Mars. Warlord of Mars I'd would see be that. fucking sick. But, okay, so Valerian was worried it was going to have a John Carter problem. Anyway, saw the movie. It's awesome. I really liked it. But the big problem with the movie is that the two characters are too young the actors playing those characters are too young to be playing those characters. So who are the actors? Dane DeHaan doing a Keanu Reeves impersonation. Like, I shit you not. I was, I was like, is he doing this intentionally? And then halfway through, I was like, yes, he is. He's, he's yeah. being like space Keanu. Like, he's like, yo, whoa. I'm like, I'm a space officer. Like, that's how he talks. And, and that's is, not how he just, talks in real life. You could just cast real Keanu on account of he's immortal. Exactly. Um, and Cara Devaline? Oh, Devaline? Delavine. Delavine, who yeah. is great in it. I really like her. So, actually, the first thing I've seen her in that I've... Because I don't like Paper Towns. No, I don't like Paper Towns. And either. Suicide Squad, let, let, let's never speak of it again. But I haven't seen her in anything where I've been like, whoa. And I saw her in this, and I was like, what? Okay, I get it. Yeah. I get it. This totally makes sense. But the characters are talking about, like, marriage and commitment and settling down and, like, committing to each other and having a life together. And they're, like, 12. You don't buy it. Yeah. You do not buy it because they're so young. Whereas I'm like, wow, how interesting. If you'd switched this up and had their age characters, and they're, like, still in their 20s, you know, yeah. but if you'd had their age characters in Jupiter Ascending. Maybe just swap the cast. Swap Channing and Mila for... For Dane and Kara. Maybe. And also, Dane DeHaan just doesn't have the physicality of to play that, like, swashbuckling Han Solo yeah. space cop. He Which doesn't have Tatum it. totally would. I yeah. Would he's so charming. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's like an unproblematic fave. You're like, oh, Channing Tatum, bless you. <sighs> nice guy. I kind of want to pat you on the head and call you a little buddy, but... uh Did I ever tell you about the time I had... Actually, I've spoken about it before on this podcast. I wouldn't... I, I, think, had, I think you have to. I had lunch it. with him once. It was yeah, very nice. Yeah, you have um, the story. It's a great story. Yeah, but anyway, I don't know how this all relates back to Vampire Academy, which is a movie <laughs> that we love. Yeah, it's one of the greatest films ever made, in my opinion. Though the story of how I first saw Vampire Academy, like I had just been to this arts festival, mm, beautiful. and yeah, and it was an experimental arts festival, mm. and I'd just been to this overnight event that was in a museum, yeah. and I was like, all night art in a museum, cool, I could be into that, and it was just like the worst shit. It's ever happened to me every cliche you can imagine a lot about, of male like, feminists or something like that yeah well like there was just two hours of some like 20 year old second year philosophy student trying to mansplain Deleuze and I'm like look I don't really like Deleuze to begin with but I'm also pretty sure you're wrong about this from three to five in the morning like oh Jesus so by the time this was over I was like oh god palate cleanser yeah so I went and like I don't really drink coffee much but I had like 18 cups of coffee yeah and so did my friend and we were like no we need we need some pop culture yeah because I mean at the end of the day look I might have a PhD but I am a pop culture person you are and one of the things I love so much about you is that you celebrate things that people trash like Bolt and the Beautiful and like Dawson's Creek you're a big you're a big person in the hashtag Pacey's Creek Twitter I, I movement. Indeed. Like, the, the trasher it is, the more I like it. And yeah. I'll talk more about my love of soap opera in a minute. But, um, yeah, so we were like, pop culture cleanser. Yeah. So we went out, we were in Canberra, we went to Belconnen Mall, which anyone that is from Canberra will know yeah. what kind of location that is. We looked at what was on at the movies, we were like, oh, yeah. Vampire Academy. Neither of us had read the books. Yeah. I'd, like, vaguely heard of them. Had read and, and thoroughly enjoyed the yeah. books. I was a ride-or-die fan going into this, I'm yeah. going to say. So we went into this cinema, got some more coffee. It's, like, 10 in the morning by this point. About 15 minutes in, we're, like, on the floor laughing. Everyone in the cinema is just having one of those bonding experiences. Yeah. We're all just having a great time. Yeah. And maybe people were there to see it seriously. I don't know. But 
the cinema was just rollicking with yeah. laughter. And just, it was just one of those beautiful, magical theatre experiences. Yeah. And afterwards, I was like, well, look, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that was so much fun. But maybe I, you know, I hadn't slept. And it was just a great palate yeah. cleanser from Deleuze. So I, I needed to see it again to check. So I went to see it three more times at the cinema. Oh, my God. Each time better than the last. Yeah. Like, this movie is genuinely I saw it multiple times at the movies <laughs> as well. I, yeah. It was just like... It, I saw it at the Australian premiere of Vampire Academy, which um, the girl who plays Vasilisa, terrible name. It sounds like Vaseline. Uh, it's like a vampire version of Vaseline. If you say Vaseline with a lisp, it sounds like Vasilisa. <laughs> but she's played by Lucy Fry, who's an Australian actress. Has done lots of mermaid shows. Yeah. Well, she's actually, she's going to be, she's like the, one of the main characters in Bright, which ah. is the Netflix original movie that Will Smith's in and Joel Edgerton with his orcs. It's basically like um, Bad Boys, but with orcs. Good um, times. Is she an orc? She's an elf, actually. Yeah, of course she'd be an elf. She looks. A bit she like looks. An elf. A bit, she's elfy yeah. looking. She's got like I'd beautiful blonde hair, and she's like thin and tall and white. Um, but she's Australian, and so they'd done a big like Australian premiere and shit like that. And so I got to interview um, Zoe Deutsch, who I'm. We she love. Was just so we good. fucking love. Perfectly and it's, how, how justified do you feel in your love of this movie, but also your love of her to see how like she's quite big now. Yeah, her career's taken like, off. I fucking told you, man. I fucking told you. Because she is so great in this movie. She's Carries it. Carries it. Oh my god, she's perfect. You nuts, what are you thinking? Trust me, you do not want to have to get a nose job in Montana. She's absolutely perfect. And like, if this movie had succeeded and then been a franchise, she, like, she would have been so great. Like, it would have been so, they tried to crowdfund yeah. Frostbitten, and it got to like 17%. Oh, uh, and it was like $300,000. Yeah. And they needed to fund like five mil. And they just, oh, anyway. they just couldn't, couldn't fucking broke there. my heart. Yeah, but me anyway. too. I donated. And so I'd interviewed them that day, go to the premiere and get to interview them there. I was like, fuck yeah, this is great. Go into the premiere. It was at George Street Event Cinemas, and I ended up sitting next to, um, is it? Anna Heinrich and Tim Robards. Yeah, yeah, from The Bachelor. Yeah, right. Another one of my great pop culture loves. Yes, who I knew from just being on the journalism circuit. You see those people at, like, the opening of an envelope and stuff. So they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, good, good. So I sit down next to them and I was like, oh, you guys excited to see this? They're like, we actually have no idea what this is. And I was like, oh, my God, let me tell you, you're going to (laughs) fucking love it. Prepare for the greatest thing ever. The books are amazing. And I fully talked at them, not to them, at them for, like, 15 minutes before the movie started about how great it was and how they were going to love it and how it was going to be amazing. And I shit you fucking not, the movie starts, I hear, like, a disgruntled sort of, like, rumble to my left. And then they got up and left about 20 minutes <gasps> into the movie. How dare they? I know, I'll never forget it. Maybe they were there just to see Claire Foy. Because Claire Foy from The Crown is from the Vampire Academy. Golden Globe winner, Claire yeah. Foy. How different her career would have been if this franchise had taken off and she was committed to it. Olga like, Karolienko, fucking Gabrielle Byrne. Yeah, what's, what's Gabrielle Byrne doing in that movie? Mate. Sarah, I was like, you couldn't get Ian McShane? <laughs> like, you had to go next? Sarah Hyland is in there. I mean, that's to be yeah. expected, frankly. Yeah, but, oh, God, it's just so good. And one, one thing that Maria and I have discussed a lot that we really like about it is that there is a teacher-student romance in this, which, yeah. personally, I'm not so keen yeah. on, but they, the guy Sounds they is. cast as Dimitri looks like oh, a teacher. Fuck. He looks like, it, you look at it and you're like, oh, no. Yeah, no, Ooh, she's Do 18. not love her dress. You're or burn it. <laughs> yeah. it. He looks... So old, and he is Russian. Yeah. So tick and tick, both there. But it was like the first kind of time where you'd seen this sort of romance played out, mm. where they actually cast within yeah. the right age groups. Like she was nineteen when she was filming this, yeah. and he was like twenty nine, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and he looks ten years older. BC, than um, yeah. obviously. <laughs> It's just like, oh, you see why it's fucked up and why it's like yeah. a really wrong situation. They anyway, they get together and stay together for the entire of the series, so nobody really challenges it. Yeah. But, I mean, I love that he's like supposedly this notorious badass, but his job is essentially PE teacher. He is a PE teacher. <laughs> he is that, a that's PE his job. job. It's Hannibal Burris and Spider-Man: Homecoming, basically. <laughs> um, but one of the things we do both love about it is that it's essentially a love story of female friendship. Yes, there's so yes. many women in this movie. It's all their story and it's all about their friendship yeah and like the the central relationship of this is not rose and dimitri yeah rose and lissa her friend and they're connected psychologically because of like this various there's a car crash and there's like a whole big thing i won't go into the mechanics of it but so often you'd see that kind of mind connection between a man and a woman and it'd be played for romance yes here it's it's a mechanism for rose to defend her best friend yeah and like you know 
come to her aid and like punch people and yeah. it's great you know I'm like, into it yeah there's just so much to like about this movie yeah why didn't it take off? Well, I, I suppose I know. So uh, we we it, know. Yeah. We know why. But it's on paper. It should have worked. You know, it's by the brothers who did Heathers and Mean Girls. Yeah. Like, why shouldn't have that have worked? But also, I, I feel like the poster and the marketing was really, like, clever. I, it was so engaging because I remember the posters. They were bright neon green. Yeah, with pink. With bright pink. And it was the silhouettes of the girls walking. Yeah. It was fucking sick posters. And the tagline for a movie called school, Vampire Academy was, sucks. they suck at school. That's it. That's it. Yeah. They suck at school. Yeah, it was fucking sick. Like, it should have gone... And I remember seeing that first trailer and it had the Charlie XCX song. Obviously, I'm a great musician. Um, in it. And I was like, this is going to be the greatest movie ever made. And then the movie opens with MIA. Like... Any movie that opens with Live fast, die young. Bad, bad girls, girls do, do it well. well. But then there's a bit, oh god, <laughs> where he's like, <laughs> in oh god, it really established what what how difficult to loving it was going to be. Where he's like, this song sucks, and I mean like in the literal meaning, yeah, or except because he's one of the fancy vampires. He yeah. has an English accent yes. for some reason. Because class system in the vampire world is, oh, if you're a British vampire, well, if you have a British accent, you're the magic vampire, yeah. and if not, you're the punching vampire. Yeah, well... So Rose is a punching vampire. She's a pun- yeah, is definitely. a magic vampire. Magic, different. And also, they do this, like, big montage at the start where it's like, some vampires um, have watched Avatar, The Last Airbender, and therefore can do these <laughs> powers. And it's in a lab. Yeah. And it's it's and super with like weird. flasks and it's shit. terrible. It's ter- like we did a skit on the feed where I was supposed to be a scientist and we got a bunch of dry ice. You can get like a kilo of dry ice for like twenty bucks. It's yeah. actually really great. You have to good handle to it carefully. Really good if you ever need like smoke and shit. Yeah. You drop it into some like room temperature water and shit goes bananas. But we had a bunch of like coloured test tubes. I was wearing a lab coat that was actually Leland Chin's dressing gown, <laughs> but we couldn't find a lab coat, so we just used that. And I had like the glasses on and we were doing this fake lab scene yeah. and it was supposed to be about how MRAs are scientists actually of gender. It was very funny <laughs> at the time. Um, but that science, fake science scene yeah. shot in the foyer at SBS looked more real than <laughs> the opening science montage of this movie that was 20 million bucks or something. Yeah. And the montage is basically saying, ooh, the magic vampires have Hogwarts classes. Yeah. The punching vampires do PE for yeah. half the day. It will get whored out, basically. Yeah. Blood whore is the word she uses. But also, yeah, the headmistress calls uh, Rose a blood whore because she's just a great headmistress. I could have been a model in like, Milan. The man gave me his card. Every staff member at this school is just wildly incompetent. Terrible. Like, the only competent staff member is Dimitri, and he wants to bone one of his students. Exactly. And then they let, like, the weird, creepy guy just, like, hang out there because his, like, niece or daughter or whatever the fuck Sarah Highland's character is. I think she's his daughter. Oh, They're like, yeah, Gabriel Byrne, you can just lurk around the school. Just hang out here. Why not? That's not weird. You finish Vikings, whatever. Come chill, man. And then the queen, Jolie Richardson, just randomly turns up to drag students. To drag students. I'm so disappointed you. Queen out. Like, But then at the end, Lissa, you know, drags the queen and gives her famous no slut shaming oration. She has her mean Um, girls moment where she's like, and you get a piece, and you get a piece. I hate it. That's my only bit of the movie I can say I genuinely hate is that that speech at the end of it because it's so stupid. How can and you the, hate the no slut chain? No, I speech. hate that speech. I hate it. I, I agree with the message, but it's such a weird moment. Like, no fucking way. <laughs> no fucking way. In a world of all the things, of like fucking <laughs> sigh hounds and like flame hand men and emos and space and whatever. That evil guy called Kenneth. Kenneth, oh fuck. <laughs> the most evil name. The, of all names. But like, in a world where I can buy all that shit, yeah. I couldn't buy that speech. <laughs> like, it was a point too far. And also the queen thing, like, just don't have her in there. You don't need to have her in there that early. But, um, one of the things that also was awesome about that movie was that they all looked like teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. Which is rare. It is really fucking really rare. rare. Like, Actually, the other kind of main, one of the other main teenage characters is played by Cameron Monaghan yeah. in the US Shameless. He plays Mason, who's like Rose's friend. And he, ducky. Yeah, Ducky. He looks yeah. like 18, you know? Well, it's it was really funny because I was reminded of Vampire Academy a lot, said no one ever, um, <laughs> <laughs> when watching Spider-Man Homecoming, mm. which is, I guess, one of the most critically and commercially successful movies of 2017. I fucking love it. I'm dying for you to see it. Oh, I- 
I've finished writing my oh, academic mate. book. I'm going to see all the movies. I'm now. dying for you to see it because it's kind of like, yeah, the superhero shit going on. Yeah. I actually wasn't interested in that and I'm the massive superhero fan, but it was the high school dynamics yeah. that was the most interesting and it's got a real John Hughesy quality. Like there's references oh, to John love. Hughes shit all throughout, but it's also really interesting because it's, um, it's a high school set in New York and it's the first high school set in New York in a movie world that actually feels like it. Like you mm. have people and burkers and you have kids that are like Orthodox Jews yeah. and you have like, it looks reflective of the mm. world. And it's not just the fact that there's two women in it and they're both black and they are both like the central female characters yeah. and that they're at the front of the scene. It's that in the background, all of the crowd scenes are diverse yeah. and kids of like different racial backgrounds, kids of different sexual backgrounds, kids of different ages who look different, who are black, brown, blue. Well, no blue. There's no blue kids. No but Smurfs. No yeah. Smurfs. Marty Smooth. Um, <laughs> but there's none of that. And it's just like, it's it feels so authentic. And it's, it feels so grounding in a movie. It's yeah. about a kid who's got fucking spider powers. And it's so sad that that is so refreshing. <sighs> Isn't it just? Isn't yeah. it just? But actually, something else that had real teenagers in it was Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Yeah, well. They were yeah. real teenagers, though, because Michelle Williams, she got... um. She fought to get, what's the word, when you get liberated from your parents? Emancipated. She got emancipated from her parents to move to L.A. and shit and film uh, Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Some of them are real teenagers. James Vanderbeek is clearly about 47 and he's filming the show. He's just, he <laughs> looks younger now yeah. than he did when the show was being filmed. Well, he's got like a Keanu thing where he basically doesn't age. He's yeah. always looked about 35. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he came out of the womb 35. Like, whoa, you give birth yeah. to a 35-year-old baby. And in like the first scene in Dawson's Creek, he's like, yeah, I'm 15. And it's like, lol, is that a joke? And it's like, no, oh. Oh, he's supposed to be 15. There you go. Wait, Dawson's Creek actually ran perfectly over the years of my high school. Yeah. It ran 1998 to 2003, which are yeah. the years I was at high school. Yeah. So I used to watch it quite religiously. Yeah. OC was my years. That was uh, the show. OC. I, everyone watched OC and I couldn't yeah. fucking stand it. <laughs> I, I couldn't stand some, it. I also have some feelings about the OC, but it's because I love soap opera. But it's also form. like the guy, Ryan, who is isn't he the main character? Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. Ben, whatever the fuck his name is. But the guy who was the Dawson in that yeah. is also like 35, yeah. That show starts. Yeah, and now he's in Gotham. He plays yeah. the commissioner. Yeah, he's he's so? really great. Yeah. yeah, he's like young Commissioner Gordon. Actually, my favorite thing about the OC. He's also in Dreambug. Did you ever see that movie with no, Amy Adams? No. Yeah, he's in that. He's a good actor. He's a really good actor. I'm so yeah. glad he you know went on to good stuff. One of my favorite things about I say favorite is ridiculous things yeah. about the OC is that his character is from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah, he's from he's from Chino. Yeah, and then he you know he gets basically adopted by his yeah. family to go and live in the rich part of town, Orange yeah. County. But whenever they film scenes in Chino, I swear where they actually change the film quality. Yeah. And it looks all grainy. Yeah. Like you're just you're walking Well, the in. light reflects differently off the pavement in Chino, yeah. obviously. Yeah, and just like it's in slightly lower definition oh, and it's it's kind of just this really visual representation. Misha Barton is also such a terrible actress. Uh, yes, as we, you know, Virgin learned Territory. again watching Virgin Territory, which is, I think, legitimately the worst film ever made. Too and soon. that is a big call. Too soon. No, I'd I'd but, I'd go down with that ship. You you've yeah. got a point. It is a terrible movie. Yeah, like probably the one film I would put in contention with it for worst film ever made is Tiptoes, if you've ever seen this. Mm-mm. So oh my god, Maria, you would have so many feelings about Tiptoes. <laughs> so the premise of Tiptoes oh, no. is that Matthew McConaughey and Gary Oldman oh, no. are twins. But Gary Oldman is a dwarf. He's a little person. And everyone in Matthew McConaughey's family is a little person except for Matthew McConaughey. He's the one like... Is it a comedy? It's a dramedy, maybe? Anyway... How old is this movie? Oh, like early 2000s? I want to say like 2003? Peter Dinklage was working. Peter Dinklage is in this movie. What? Yeah. Oh my God! How fucking pissed off would you be (laughs) if you are literal Oscar nominee? If memory serves, he was nominated for The Last Station. If you are literal Oscar nominee, Peter Dinklage... And it's like, no, sorry, you don't get to play the dwarf in this movie. We're you gonna... get to be in the B plot. Yeah, we're going to fucking give it to Gary Oldman. Who's just, who's walking who's amazing, around on his, but still. He's like... walking around on his knees, this whole movie. It's very oh, bad. Oh, Anyway, like the, the A plot is about Matthew McConaughey and Gary Oldman. And Matthew McConaughey is dating Kate Beckinsale. And then Kate Beckinsale gets knocked up and they discover that because Matthew McConaughey's family has all these little person genes, yeah. that the baby is also a little person. And like, how do you? Oh, okay. Why not? Yeah, I think they only discover it when the baby's born. Okay. I okay. like. I mean, it's not very. I'm like, it's a little fetus of like little it's... people. Oh, I, I don't know how they tell. But anyway, oh Matthew God. McConaughey freaks out and can't deal, and so Kate Beckinsale actually ends up with Gary Oldman, and they raise the baby together. 
But the, it's a really bad film. But the B plot is about Peter Dinklage, who's Gary Oldman's best friend Maurice, a French Marxist, meeting Patricia Arquette, who's a prostitute, and they just get drunk together in parks. And that's the whole plot. And, you know, Peter, I love Patricia Arquette. Peter Dinklage just, you know, says, like, random things in a French accent, like, oh, political power always comes from the barrel of a gun, and I'm a Marxist, who are you? Like... And that's literally the whole plot, is that them just kind of getting drunk in parks and hanging out No one together. matches his practical, tactical brilliance? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the Lafayette of this film. Lafayette! Yeah. And he, yeah, Maurice the French Marxist. It's, he's the best thing about this So it's like, guys, we need a French character. Maurice. Yeah. Or Charles. And Those so, are your two yeah, options. Like, he's the, the second main little person character. Oh so God. for the A plot, they were like, no, we're going to go Gary Oldman, but here, you can, you know... You can be the French Marxist Peter Tinklage. Fucking hell. It's a shockingly bad movie, but I do think Virgin Territory might be worse. Well... If not, just because it has that scene with the cow. Oh, God, don't. And Chris Egan's in it immediately. <laughs> that just, like, takes it away. Is it Chris Egan? Yeah. Is it? Reese Wakefield. No, Chris Egan. Which yeah. one? Oh, one of them. I always get the I think confused. it's Chris Egan. Yeah, right. But so many random famous people are in Virgin Territory. Like, Matthew Reese is in there. Rupert Everett. No, no, not Rupert Everett. Rupert Friend. Yeah, like, the villain is Tim Roth, who just really didn't want oh to be there. Oh, my God. It's a bad scene. It's a bad scene. <laughs> it's, yeah. Richard Roxburgh's wife? Yeah, Sylvia Kolokka. Mm-hmm. She, she's there playing a stripper nun. Yeah, well, I mean, the two main characters in this film are Misha Barton and Hayden yeah. Christensen, so that kind of sets the tone. For Guys, the, it sets the tone. The acting quality. If you hated Anakin Skywalker, well, <laughs> let me tell you. And then just a really interestingly curated soundtrack, should we say? If you can call it that. Um, for a movie that's set in 14th century Italy. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's, it's, look, it's not great. Um, we are going to cut to an interview now that I did actually while I was staying with you in Hobart with this wonderful woman, um, who I had been a massive fan of for a really long time. She did this thing called the Girly Werewolf Project. That's super cool. It's so cool. She's a, she's a doctor at RMIT, University of Melbourne, um, Dr. Yasmina Sianatis, and it is basically, um, like a feminist look at werewolf history and how the patriarchy have kind of tried to use the werewolf myths and legend to repress women and women's freedom and sexuality and all this kind of stuff. I can't imagine why you would find that interesting. Oh my God, what the fuck? How out of left field for you? Years and years ago, and I shoot you not, seven years ago, I came across her work through werewolf circles of the internet Mm. that I gravitate towards. I do like that there are such circles. Somebody sent me a tweet the other day saying, oh my God, I love werewolf Twitter. And I was like, (laughs) I didn't even know it was a thing that exists, but I guess I'm part of it and that's awesome. Um, But I'd sent her an email saying like, I love your work so much. I think what you're doing is the fucking shit. I'm writing this book at the moment. One day if it ever gets published, I would love one of your artworks to Mm. be on the cover of it and she's like oh so sweet bless you you sweet angel fuck off no she was really nice <laughs> but it was really interesting because then years later when I was in Hobart she was having an exhibition mm. and did like a lecture at the exhibition and it was an exhibition of the girly werewolf project oh, and so awesome. I got to see those very artworks that I've been obsessed with for years and meet her in person yeah and it was so fucking cool and for me to be two books in and like you know have have the who's afraid series and the show and all that kind of thing and be able to be like your art inspired my in brackets art but it was really, really fucking awesome. And it was extra awesome because I was there with my friend Sonia, Sonia Hammer, who has been on the show before. And, um, and she is, you know, has worked on me, um, worked on the Who's Afraid books with me and yeah. is a massive fan of the Who's Afraid universe and is Polynesian as well. And so it's kind of both been our like little feverish pop culture journey. Yeah. And then for us to both be there at the same time. And you hear her pop up in this interview a little bit. So if you hear a Kiwi accent, that is Sonia. <laughs> it's not just like a mysterious New Zealand ghost that inhabits interesting spaces in uh, Hobart. Though so we do have those, obviously. You do definitely have yeah. those. This was a super fucking cute little building as well, i got to say. It was next to Honey Badger, the oh, cafe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Salaminka. Yeah, it was in Salaminka Court. Yeah, and that's it, gorgeous. Oh, it's fucking amazing. And then I went and had, like, this incredible... Um, it was like a mushroom situation. I went to Honey Badger, which is a very well-known dessert cafe in Hobart. Everything in it is delicious. Literally everything. Like, the tables are delicious. Dude, the chairs are delicious. I can, like, you cannot. I cannot even... I had a mushroom dish there. I went to a dessert cafe and had like a savory dish, which is not something that I do ever. But this thing sounded really good. And it was like, I can't even fucking describe what it was, but it came like in a little like, not saucepan, like a frying pan thing. And it was all these beautiful, like seasoned and cooked mushrooms on like this beautiful brioche Mm. bun. It was 
fucking orgasmic. That's amazing. incredible. Anyway, this isn't that, but here's the interview. <laughs> So I'm here at the Stranger With My Face International Film Festival with Dr. Yasmina Sinanas. Yeah, that's it. Congratulations on opening the Girly Werewolf Project exhibition. This is like a pocket version of that. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a snapshot. There are some a couple of works that have been made since mm-hmm. since the since the PhD. Yeah, which was which I completed in. 2013, at the end of 2013. So there's a couple of new works since then, but effectively, yes, it is the the girly werewolf form of fame. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love that like the Tasmanian audience are getting a specific side of this of this thing that you've been working on for a very long time. Um, I'm obviously a massive fan of female werewolves and female werewolf lore. Yeah. What was it about lady lycanthropes that first got you really interested in this as a oh, PhD subject? Well, mm, that's a that's a long, involved, convoluted story. <laughs> like my entire. Um, Life? Yeah, well, no, no well, it, it's, I actually resisted them for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not like an, a horror person. <laughs> Dispe- appearances to the contrary. You can't see that, she's gesturing to herself. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm not, uh, yes, I don't look like a, like a gothic horror type person. No, it, um, it started off with me making autobiographical work mm-hmm. and wanting to find a motif that I could use instead of sticking my face in everything. And, and I wanted something that acknowledged my, my Lithuanian ancestry mm. heritage. Oh, that explains so much. Um, yeah, probably does. Yeah, <laughs> the, and the symbol for the capital of Lithuania, the symbol for Vilnius, is an iron wolf. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's a great, great symbol. That's a nice romantic image. I'll work with that. So I looked into the, you know, the legend. But frankly, the legend is not that interesting, and not a lot of material to work with. So I started looking at the wolf itself as a way of expanding, you know, the material I could work with that I could access. And I became fascinated with the way that the wolf had been invented and reinvented throughout history. And I also became aware of the parallels in the way that the women had been invented and reinvented throughout history. Like cultural perceptions of, of women and wolves had all of these parallels. So there's, you know, if you, if you go back far enough, there's the, the wolf as ideal mother in the Romulus and Remus stories. So you've got the nurturing mother stereotype. You've got the ravening man-eater, the prostitute, yeah. the, the, the whore. Yeah, the, yeah ones I relate to quite personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, and in a lot of uh, uh, Latin languages, lupa or she-wolf or loba is, is a slang for, for prostitute, whore. So there is that, that correlation there. Uh, there's, the, there's the witch heretic which is where the werewolf comes in mm-hmm. there as well. And then sort of more recently with the eco-feminist movement and the wolf is the, like, the poster animal for environmental causes yeah. and, and the symbol of, of the wilderness at risk and yeah. under threat. So all, all of these parallels. Um, so I did resist the female werewolf for a while, but... but just all of those paths intersected. They just kept intersecting, and the symbol that that like like captured all of those intersections most succinctly was the female level. So there came a point where I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to go down this path, and I'm just going to have to make these works. And it was it was just incredibly liberating. It just opened up a whole lot of other stuff. And what it also the the PhD allowed me to do so I did do the the masters one and it was it was still mostly autobiographical mm-hmm. so looking at at the the wolf or the werewolf as a, a metaphor for cultural hybridity being you know Lithuanian heritage yeah. living in Australia so my own cultural heritage was still fairly autobiographical mm. but this allowed me to look outward into other ma- manifestations of the female werewolf and it just opened up so many 
new possibilities <laughs> and well. new ways for imagining yeah. the female werewolf and, and what she was represented throughout history and how she could change. Were you surprised to find, I guess, female werewolfism and feminism mm. so intrinsically linked? Yeah, I was. I was, and they're especially linked during the the suffragette yeah. era as, yeah. as well. Yeah. No, well, well, there's um, during that um, during that time there was there was like this sudden. Uh, surge in gothic literature about female werewolves, which most of it was written about men, where you've got the the woman as a ravening um, destroyer of families mm-hmm. and destroying, mm-hmm. and she's free thinking and she is, she's she's independent, yep, yep, and she comes in and she you know kills the husband and the children and and whatever. So as a metaphor for the the suffragette, um, and the but that and there was one particular brother and sister team who, who wrote a story about a female werewolf as well at that time. And, and again, she, she does destroy the family, but you can, you can read through the subtext that there's quite a bit of admiration for this, for this female mm. werewolf character as well, White Fell, that she's admired for her independence and her strength and she's, she can match males in, in terms of physical strength and speed and, and power. Um, Tommy Grayson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the and the the great thing about this is the brother the, well the sister wrote the story Clements wrote the story and Lawrence illustrated mm. the, the story uh, they also set up the Suffrage Atelier which was a printmaking collective mm. studio uh, for women for professional illustrators so giving them opportunities to to make their work and sell their work professionally uh, so so the illustrations and the story are obviously coloured by or informed by their work as a pro-suffrage kind of collective. So, so that was really nice to have werewolves, female werewolves and printmaking yeah. having an earlier <laughs> connection yeah. as well was really exciting. Charts too. out how you want to do, you know, <laughs> hmm, what exact medium should I do this in? Aha. Yeah, yep, and it's perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I find it really interesting because a lot of my introduction into feminism and werewolf and how they intersect has been through pop culture mm-hmm. and I've always loved werewolf stories but I found them a bit of a sausage fest mm. um you know werewolf movies yeah largely yeah. are about werewolf Wild men yeah exactly yeah. yeah welcome to the patriarchy motherfuckers. <laughs> um but one of the things I found really interesting in a talk you gave earlier was that the first film depiction of a werewolf was actually a woman yeah in a movie called the werewolf yes. that was destroyed yes that was lost in a fire yeah if anyone has got a copy, copy let us or know. Or even just a little snippet of Send us a tweet. <laughs> I would love to see more about That's that. That's fascinating because well. I didn't know that. And then, oh. you know, you have movies like Cry of the She-Wolf and Ginger Snaps, obviously, yeah. um, When one. Animals Dream, The Curse, yeah. like a few yeah. like little yeah. bits yeah. here and, and the there. And as well. Right? Yeah. But... Like the very first was a woman, and I was like, yeah. man, if that hadn't been destroyed and maybe it's seen a little bit more wildly, maybe we would have had a very different sort of pop culture yeah, conversation. Well, well, that's Child what Chapman destroyed it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he was a misogynist. Well, well, it's the mustache. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the mustache. <laughs> got to bring. But but I do, and that's part of um, what I'm trying to do. And I think the reason that that we think of males uh, of werewolves as male is because they've had such a strong visual. Presence. Yeah. So with the Wolfman, it's such an iconic oh, film, and those transformation scenes are so strong. Uh, so that's the default thing in the American Werewolf in London. Same thing. So, so yeah. you've got this really strong visual culture of the male werewolf, but the visual culture of the female werewolf is less so. So this is what mm. I'm trying to do: is is kind of like, okay, what about all of these these other narratives, which are which are you know. Every bit is valid mm-hmm. and really fascinating. What about the howling? Is it a howling, number one? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Wallace turns into a werewolf. Yes, she yeah. does. Like a well, in fact, in fact, there are... Because female werewolves have to stay inherently fuckable. <laughs> exactly. But there, there are... There are Marsupials. seven. Yes, I know. I love it. Well, which is... Which Shout is out Chris Lee. <laughs> which is, gets a little reference yeah. nod down the end there. But... In that there are, what, seven howlings? Mm. And May they rest in peace. In six of them, female werewolves are chief protagonists. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think of them as being, oh, well, 
maybe maybe the first one she the main character does become a female werewolf so mm. she still has a prominent role in the in the film mm. and then in most of the other ones it's kind of like it's presented as the twist mm. but the twist is always mm. that it's a female yeah. werewolf mm. in in the in the film yeah i mean i always think who's going to understand and relate more to the idea of turning into a beast a few days a month and blood and gore more than women compared to men and yeah. having to sort of like cover up your inner monster yeah um yes i mean thank you so much for having a chat i really appreciate it <laughs> pleasure and this has been amazing to get to see this work in real life <laughs> wicked well look um she's amazing and if you want to check out her work you can do that by just google the girly werewolf project no it pops up one day when i have money i want to buy one of her pieces because they'd be so cool to have yeah, that would be awesome. It would be really fucking cool. But she also, in, in the lecture that she did, she talked about how the first... So, you know, finding female werewolves depicted in film and television is quite rare. Yeah. Less rare now, but, like, you know, you obviously have Phoebe, um, Phoebe Tonkin's character Haley from the originals. Yeah. You also have things like Ginger Snaps, um, Kelly Armstrong's Bitten, you know, Tommy Grayson, obviously, from Who's Afraid. It becomes definitely more common now. But um, for decades and decades and decades, mm. you couldn't find female representation among werewolves. The very first werewolf movie ever made was about a female werewolf. Yeah. And she gets persecuted by the male townsfolk. And it was called um, The Werewolf. Like, not the best the title werewolf, in the world. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, and the film for that got burnt down. There was one copy of it got burnt down in a big factory fire. And so the film got destroyed. That's really sad. And so it kind of basically is rejected from the canon because... Because you can't see it. Yeah, yeah. There's a few stills from it that people have, but... It's like this big, it's kind of like the holy grail of film, I guess, um, artifacts. It's like yeah. if anyone ever finds a print of this movie. But it's so interesting to think how different the narrative would have been if that movie hadn't have been destroyed in the very first werewolf movie we get. It's about this this metaphor for women being persecuted by men. Yeah. And it makes total sense for werewolves to be women. I mean, creatures governed by a monthly cycle. Yeah. Like, like that's not actually subtext. That's just straight text. up text. It's just the text. Know? It's just the text. Um, so at the end of each episode of FEA Film and Feminism, we do this thing where we ask you to pick a feminist of the mm-hmm. episode. So it doesn't have to be someone living. It can be someone dead. But it's just someone who you think is pretty fucking awesome and you want to give them a shout out. Yeah. So I'm going to go, because I am a literary historian. Yeah, so you do it. I'm going to go far back in history mm. and... I was actually, before this episode, telling Maria about this person. I'm going to tell you about Della Rivier Manley. Oh, my God. Yes, girl. So, Della Rivier Manley. This is the most highbrow feminist of the episode (laughs) ever. Della Rivier Manley was an author in kind of the late 1600s, early 1700s. And she wrote a whole bunch of things, but chief among them were, um, she wrote really thinly veiled political satire. Mm -hmm. And people kept suing her. And she was like, "Uh, no, you can't sue me because it's, you know, it's, it's fiction. It's totally not about you. And everyone was like, well, look we know it is and Mm -hmm. she's like look I'm admitting nothing so there are all these like failed lawsuits against her and she wrote books that were like really sympathetic to women in a time when literary culture wasn't uh, like you know very friendly to women so like I I wrote my PhD on representations of virginity loss and Mm -hmm. if you look at 18th century representations of virginity loss and girls that lose their virginity outside marriage it's like oh my god that's terrible. What a pariah. And they all die. Yeah. Yeah. So like, well, that's definitely what happened after I lose my virginity. Yeah. Me too. I'm you know, a ghost. We're actually we're both, both ghosts. Both dead now. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm a vampire. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. So, um, it's like death becomes her, but none yeah. of us are fighting for Bruce Willis. Yeah. Well, I mean, Fuck that guy. Yeah. We've got other people to fight for. Um, but like our gender. <laughs> But, yeah, Della Rivier, like, a classic example of this kind of, oh, if you lose your virginity, you're the worst mm. narrative from this time is uh, the book Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, yeah. uh, where this girl, Clarissa, gets raped by this guy called Lovelace, and then she basically can't... I mean, none of this is her fault, yeah. obviously. She's raped. And then she, you know, she's kind of got this virginal mind but this violated mm. body, and then she essentially ends up dying of cognitive dissonance because she just, like can't reconcile these two things mm. she's like i can no longer be good and virtuous therefore she has to die like it's it's fu- it's it's fucked up man but Della de Rivier manley was writing all the stuff that was like uh yeah look you know if you know girl's got a boy that she likes like it's not the worst thing in the world mm. if she sleeps with him and everyone's like <gasps> and she's like no seriously guys it's not Anyway, there's this, like, and she was friends with these other two writers, Apra Ben and Eliza Haywood, and people would refer Eliza. to them. <laughs> people would refer to them as the fair triumvirate of wit, but Della Rivier Manley's probably like... We need one more, and then we can start referring to ourselves as that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find one more, and then we'll be Mark II. But, uh... <laughs> 
But she's kind of the most feminist one. And yeah. in 1730, there was this fabulous letter to the editor printed. I say fabulous. It was super misogynistic. Mm. Printed in a newspaper called The Universal Spectator that said that Della Riviere Manley and Eliza Haywood's books ruined more virgins than masquerades or brothels. <laughs> like, her books were literally imagined as having the power to just deflower virgins and ruin them. And this is part of a long tradition of men thinking that women knowing stuff and reading stuff has the power to, like damaged their weak frail minds. Totally does, obviously. But Della Rivera Manley was like having none of this. She was off like having lots of affairs, mm. writing political satire and just like laughing at people. Mm. And I think she was a boss. I love that. Fuck yeah. Well, I'm going to go a literary lady too, I guess, but Margaret Atwood is going to be my choice for feminist of the episode. Fantastic. Yeah. A little bit old school, but kind of relevant because um, The Handmaid, Handmaid's Tale, if you haven't watched it in Australia... New Zealand is available on SBS on demand and you can watch it for free um, and fucking commercial networks are having a cry about that but would they buy it? No. Um, anyway, no point. Yeah. But I I binge watched um, all ten episodes like three-ish months ago when it first came out mm. in the US um, through Hulu and um, and I don't advise that. <laughs> yeah, Binging. that's brutal. It's fucking savage. Um, yeah, it's, it's fucking rough, let me tell you. But Margaret Atwood's book is amazing and it's a seminal text for a reason. It's super fucking fascinating, but it's also super fucking terrifying because the world has spun around now that that is something that is happening, that is a real thing that exists in our world. We are living in the fucking literal Handmaid's Tale right now. Thank you, Mike fucking Pence and Scott Morrison and co. One step from Gilead. Literally. Like, I remember the first time I read The Handmaid's Tale, I read it in one sitting. What a fantasy world! The book far away from my face, just kind of going, (gasps) but it was distant, you know? You're like, nah, that won't happen and now it's like oh (laughs) actually neck minute yeah um and it's also interesting because the character um the fucking um the guy's wife uh, serena joy serena joy you are seeing a thousand serena joys out there right now and people like megan kelly and stuff like that yeah it's very interesting oh my kelly (laughs) um the trump daughters everything anyway I loved the book, but it was definitely a text that left me wanting more. Like, yeah. so, I wanted so much more detail. It was the kind of story where every time I reread it, I'm like, oh, I wish there was fucking more to this. Like, you just want more. And the reason I love the adaption of the series so much is that it expands the world. It does a really perfect job of what I think book-to-TV adaptations can do, yeah. and that is stay true to the theme and tones of the original, but expand the world. Yeah. And you get a chance to view perspectives from all different characters who you only get touched in, and it gives you a better illustration of this world of Gilead and how things sit and I fucking loved it and so I just wanted to make Margaret Atwood my feminist of the episode for not only writing a ball of text back then but one that is so relevant to right now and is kind of finding a new life which uh which I really dig yeah also just like brief shout out to the soundtrack of the oh Tale, dude Kylie Minogue's in there unbel- yeah <laughs> I read a great tweet the other day that was like yeah Peter Taggart's of co- tweet of course it's a dystopia Kylie makes it in America and the world ends <laughs> so, so good shout out to Peter Taggart who is the best um but yeah that was such a good tweet I was like she yeah. finally makes it through <laughs> in the US and then the world Lands. like oh of course maybe that's how we'll know that Gilead is coming uh, Kylie's gonna have a hit in the US and we'll all be like fuck no. <laughs> she's been laying low lately she's gotta be due she's for a new album or something. something did you ever see the one episode she did of Gallivant no it no, was I beautiful didn't. she was so good I interviewed her once and it was she, she's a great performer <laughs> she's a great performer <laughs> was not a good interview like she, she was very lovely but yeah. it's just it was her talents lie in the performing sphere, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. Well, in that episode, she's singing mostly. Yeah. So she's really leaning Dude, in full lean in hard what you got. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on and My being on FGF Filmed Feminism. So glad we got to do this because yeah. no one else will talk about Vampire Academy with me. I will talk about Vampire Academy for as many hours yes! as you want. Thank you. All of them. Yes. All of the hours. We never even got to the mortal instruments, which we both have a lot of feelings about. Oh, God. (laughs) Don't even. Don't even get me started. (laughs) Fuck that shit. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.
If you liked what you just heard, please like and review the F Yeah Film and Feminism podcast on iTunes. You can also find them on SoundCloud. And please check out the website, fyeahfilmandfeminism.tumblr.com. You follow the hosts and Maria Lewis at Movie Maz, also with two Zs. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a guest, or throw forward a film, TV show, book, or whatever for the girls to discuss, you can do so on the Tumblr page.